Uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, I shared only half of what I wanted to share. The problem became that I had 12 points, and 12 points is way beyond what all of us can handle. So today I'm going to finish off that. Don't worry, I'm not going to add another 12. I probably could have. But that first week we talked about how we as, as Christians need to live in harmony and unity. And that that's actually talked about way more than heaven or hell. God wants all of us to experience true unity, true community, true oneness, true harmony with other believers. Nothing is more valuable to God than his church. It's his bride, it's his body, it's his flock. The Bible tells us that Christ died for the church. That's why the unity of God's family was the number one topic on, on his mind as he approached the cross. Jesus was going to die for the church. John 17 verse 20 said this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. I may be one with the Father just as you and me are one, but may they also be in us so that the world may believe in me that you sent me. So today we're going to get really practical. We're going to get to a place where we're going to understand how do I get along better as brothers and sisters in the family of God? And what's my role in that? I, I would love to do a review of the 12 statements, but it's on YouTube. You can watch it. How can I be an agent of unity in the church? Since God paid the highest price for the church, God wants the church to be protected, especially from the division the damage, sorry, that's caused by division and conflict and disharmony. You're commissioned by Jesus to do everything possible to preserve the unity, protect the fellowship, promote the harmony in your church family. It includes everyone. So here's four simple steps, okay, from 12 to 4. We'll make it easy for us. The very first one, you'll always see it on the screen behind me or on your screen at home. Focus on what we share, not our differences. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 14, verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Well, God tells us this in Ephesians 4, that we share seven great things in common. And God says, I want you to focus on that. And so Ephesians 4 says this, here is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over and through all and, in, in, and is in all. I want you to notice how many different times the word one was used. So what God is saying to us is he's saying we share the same salvation, we share the same forgiveness, we share the same grace, we share the same mercy, we share the same life, we, say, we share the same future. These factors are way, way more important 
than our gender, our race, our economic status, our background, or even our sins. It was God who gave us different personalities. It was God who allowed us to choose from, from different places of what we like, what our hairstyle will be, what our preference is. So this means that you and I get to enjoy and value each other. Thank God there's differences in our church. We don't celebrate just what we have in common, but we celebrate our differences. God doesn't want us to merely tolerate each other. He wants us to be united with each other. God wants unity, not uniformity. For unity's sake, we must never let differences divide us. We have to stay focused on what matters the most, learning to love each other as Christ has loved us. I know what some of you are thinking right now. You might be saying this in your mind, but Matt, what about all those differences in members in our church that irritate me? How am I supposed to deal with them? How do I actually be unified with someone who just irritates me to no end? Well, conflict is usually a sign that the focus has shifted to less important issues. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to, to go to Romans chapter 14 just for a minute. There's some things that we should all agree on. We have to agree on, like Jesus is the Son of God. He died and rose again. He's coming back one day. The Bible is God's Word. Those are not disputable matters. But we have disputable matters. They are things that where well-meaning Christians can have a difference of opinion. Look at Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, keep your eyes focused on there. Let me give you a different translation. The message trans translation actually says way, way more than what we have in the New International Version or the version you're reading. It says this in Romans 14, verse 1 in the message, Welcome with open arms fellow believers who do not see things the way you do. Huge comment. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with, even when it seems they are strong on opinions, but weak in the faith department. Remember, remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. I, I love that little paraphrase we see in, in the message. When you and I don't know the background and we don't understand what our brother or sister of Christ might be doing, you know what we tend to do? We either dismiss them or we judge them because we don't understand. There's always a reason. There's a crisis always behind behavior. Hurt people will always hurt people. So I want to challenge you to stop asking when you see people that irritate you, what's wrong with them, and start asking a much more sympathetic, maybe empathetic question. What's happened to them? You see, Paul understood the great importance of, of uh, unity in the family of God, so he's passionate when he talks about unity. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 says this, I appeal, 
I beg you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are perfectly united in mind and thought. All right, so that's the first one. Here's the second area. We need to realize that I have to continually work at unity. It just doesn't happen. It's not accidental. If I'm going to be close to other people, if I'm going to be in harmony with other people, if I'm going to be unified in a small group or unified in our church, I've got to work at it. Ephesians 4 verse 3 says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I hate that phrase. Make every effort. Because that means i got to do some work. Unity just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in my family. It doesn't happen in my marriage. It doesn't happen in my relationships. It certainly doesn't happen in our church. Unity only happens when we're intentional about it. And we say, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make every effort to build unity. All right, so how do I do that? Well, here's the first area. The, the first area of actually working to bring unity into the church, to work at it, is I don't bring worldly values into the church. God says that what matters is always our reputation. No. God says what matters is not our reputation, but our character. Whenever we focus on personalities or preference or pleasure or power, prestige or popularity, guess what? Division happens. If we concentrate on our relationships with each other and loving each other, then harmony happens. Let me give you just for a minute a little background on the church in Corinth. That's why we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They were having a ton of conflict. And they started to have all kinds of conflict and division in their church family. And there was a ton of reasons. But one of their biggest reasons was that they started to place their loyalty to certain leaders rather than, than Jesus. And Paul actually had to write a letter to them and rebuke them. It's called 1 Corinthians. It's filled with rebukes to Christians who started acting like unbelievers. In fact... If you ever want to do something that's somewhat fun, read all of 1 Corinthians. Every chapter, Paul's dealing with a, a different cause of division in the church. Well, let me just show you one this morning. In chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2 through 5, he says this, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it yet. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the world? Are you not acting like mere humans? One person says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? They're only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each task. Can you see Paul saying that? 
Well, the second one, so don't bring worldly values into the church. The second one is don't be sucked into the world's fights. I don't have to tell you this. There's a lot of conflict out there right now in the world. As Christ followers, we are called to speak up for truth. We're called to speak up for the vulnerable. We're called to speak up for the elderly, for the unborn, unborn, for the poor. We are called in Scripture to speak up for those who are imprisoned, for immigrants, as the Bible calls them, foreigners, strangers, or aliens. We are called to speak up for those denied justice. In fact, did you know there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about taking care of the poor? There are about the same number, 2,000, about making sure that everyone is treated fairly and justly. There's a ton of issues that people are fighting over that the, that the Bible is silent about. It says nothing. So I want to encourage you, don't waste your time. Here's what the Bible says. We always have to go back to God's word. God says, my opinion actually is worthless. 2 Timothy 2, verse 23 and 24. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome because he must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. What does that mean in 2021? It means in a world where everyone likes to argue, don't start arguments. This isn't new. It's been going on for 2,000 years. In fact, the church that met in Rome and Paul had to write them, they got into a big conflict. You know what the conflict was about? Food. The church in Rome started having splits because they had rules, they had conflict over rules about what you could and couldn't eat. Paul had to write them this word in Romans chapter 12, verse 20. Truthfully, it's a word we need in 2021. Romans 12, verse 20, it says this, If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this may not be a rule about food. It may be what you think of COVID. It may be what you think of some other issues. Don't ever tear apart the work of God over a secondary issue. The church in Corinth was a very divided church, and they fought over everything, but their favorite conflict was over leadership. In chapter 3 that we read, Paul had to remind them that if we allow the support of any leader to create any kind of division or tension in the church, God says we are out of whack. And here's the third thing that we can do to, to bring about unity. I need to be realistic in my expectations. To expect any church to always do whatever, to do everything right and to minister perfectly to everyone all the time, that's a fantasy world. The church... Our church is filled with imperfect people. So a group of imperfect people will never be able to create a perfect community. Paul said, uh, sorry, David said this in Psalm 119 verse 96. To all perfection, I see a limit. 
But God's commands are boundless. Nothing on this earth works perfectly except God's word. To expect perfection in your church is to set ourselves up for massive disappointment. A church can be healthy without being perfect. Just like my kids, they're watching today. My kids are not perfect, but they're healthy. A church can be healthy without being perfect. When you discover what God intends real fellowship to be, it's easy to get discouraged by the gap between the ideal and what's really happening. Let me say this, and I want you to listen closely. Even with all its faults, even with all its failures, and all its mistakes, and all its sin, Jesus passionately loves his church, and he wants us to do the same. If we're going to be Christ-like, a lot of people use the church, but don't love it. We must passionately love the church in spite of all of its uh, imperfections. Longing for the ideal while criticizing is the evidence of spiritual immaturity. But on the other hand, settling for the real without striving for the ideal is complacency. You know what maturity is? Maturity is living in the tension. Friends, other believers will disappoint you, but it's no excuse to stop loving them. God wants you to love the real church, not the ideal church. These people, the people you have a hard time with, they're your family. We're going to live with each other for eternity. And when we don't act like it, we just can't walk out on them. Ephesians 4 verse 2, I've referenced it a couple times today. In the New Living Translation, it says, in a way that I'd love for us to understand, be patient with each other. Make allowances for each other's faults because of your love. I could give you a long list of legitimate reasons for becoming disillusioned with the church. There's conflict, there's hurt, there's hypocrisy, there's pettiness, there's legalism, there's sins. But rather than being shocked and surprised, we've just got to remember the church is made up of real people, sinners. And I'm one of them. Because of that, we hurt each other. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. If we run from every problem, every time there is a problem, where are you and I going to build character? Becoming like Christ requires problems and pressure and pain and persecution and a lot of other things we don't like. God's not interested in our comfort as much as he's interested in our character. Because friends, we're not taking comfort to heaven. We're taking our character. Reconciliation, not running away, is always the road to stronger character and deeper fellowship. It's always better to uh, resolve a relationship than replace it. It always is. On the other hand, divorcing your church at the first sign of disappointment or disillusionment 
That's just the mark of immaturity. It represents the same values of the world where the world has no commitment to anything. I don't like it. I'm out of here. Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who was murdered who was martyred for resisting the Nazis and Hitler, wrote a classic book on genuine community and fellowship. A great book. I'd encourage you to pick it up. In Life Together, Bonhoeffer said this, that disillusionment with our local churches is a good thing because it destroys our false expectation of perfection. He said that sooner that we give up on the illusion that a church has to be perfect in order to love it, the sooner you're going to quit pretending and start admitting that we're all imperfect and we all need grace. You're going to see a quote on the screen that says this, He who loves his dream of community more than Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. We don't give thanks for the Christian fellowship which we have been placed even when there's not great experience and no discoverable riches and a lot of weaknesses and small faith and difficulty, if, on the contrary, we keep complaining that everything is paltry and petty, we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow. Well, that's great, Bonhoeffer. Now let's look at Scripture. Colossians 3.14 says this, And over all these virtues... Put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. It's not rocket science, friends. If we let love guide our life, we're doing what God calls us to. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 said this in the message translation. Love each other as if life depended on it. Can you do that? People want to be where love is. If our church is a church that genuinely loves people, genuinely loves each other, then we'd have to lock the door just to keep people out. People don't come because of a fancy program or fancy preaching. They don't come because it's a fancy building. They come because their life is changed by love. Well, let's finish this off. This one is a really important one, the fourth one. We need to be people who offer encouragement instead of criticism. When you're talking to people, offer encouragement instead of criticism. People make a living becoming critics. No one makes a living becoming an encourager. Romans 14, 19 through 20 says this, Make every effort to do which leads to peace and a mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. You want to direct your energy in the midst of COVID in the right way? Use your energy in getting along with each other. Help each other by using encouraging words. Don't drag down others by finding fault. You can always learn how to share a rebuke or point out a negative to make a critique. But you need to learn how to say it in a positive way so that they're able to receive it. There's always two ways to say something. You can say it in the nice way 
Or you can say it in the night in so nice way. Proverbs 16, verse 21 declares that the wise in heart are called discerning and gracious words because those promote instruction. The more pleasant your words, the more per- persuasive you'll be. Guess what? I'm never persuasive when I'm abrasive. If I say something offensively, it will be received defensively. Telling it like it is doesn't change anyone. I'll be honest with you. It is not hard to be negative when so much of our culture is negative. God says for us not to criticize, not to compare, not to judge each other. He says that over a hundred times in Scripture. You may not realize this, but when you criticize another believer who is doing something that they believe they're called in faith to do, you're actually interfering with God's business. Romans 14, verse 4, Paul said, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master's uh, servant stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. He goes on to say in verse 10 of that same chapter, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Remember other Christians, no matter how much we disagree with them, are not the real enemy. Any time that you and I spend comparing or criticizing our fellow believers is time that should have been spent building up the unity of our fellowship. You see, in in many ways, there's two verses that represent two different choices that we have today. And that you'll have tomorrow and the next day and the next day. The first choice is that we're going to live a self-centered life. We're not going to worry about those that we hurt. We're going to walk around being critical and judgmental of other people. Even if they're Christians. The second choice we have is to live a Christ-centered life. Instead of a self-centered life that cares about what God cares about most. That we really learn how to love. Let me show you these two verses. Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in you keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out. Or you will be destroyed by each other. Friends, you know what's sad? In COVID, that verse describes a lot of us as Christians. A lot of us as Christians are mean and demeaning. You kind of expect it from non-believers. 1 Peter 3 verse 8 is the other option. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. The author, Peter, gave us four essential qualities that we will need to work on in this upcoming year. Be sympathetic. Be full of love. Be compassionate and humble. Two weeks ago, I I shared this, that Jesus is still waiting 
for you and me to be the answer to his prayer, that we would be one. The last thing that Jesus said before he went to the cross is, Father, may they be one. We're anything but that. The church is not one. It's divided by politics. It's divided by COVID. It's divided by wearing a mask. It's divided by racism. It's divided by all kinds of other stuff. Jesus is still waiting for his prayer to be answered. Will we be a people that actually answer that prayer? The prayer that we may be one as the Father is one. Will we be that? I'm in. I hope you will be too. Let's bow our heads. God, if I said anything that wasn't of you, take it from my friends' minds. If you used me in a small way to encourage my friends, make it about the Holy Spirit that prompts, guides, and leads. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for calling us deeper and deeper and deeper. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in your name. Amen.